<clears throat> wow. Just got to look at this for a minute here and take it in. A little bit surreal this morning. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for the invite. Uh, someone said you guys needed a dust of snow, and so we, we, we brought, we bring some to you today. But we are really grateful. I, I have to tell you that um, for those of you who are newer here, we were here for 30 years. And last year, we stepped away from our ministry here, believing God has a different season for us, and we believe that. And so we, uh, last year, we moved away to, to Prineville, and uh, a very small town. And I didn't know if I could ever do a small town. It's very different. We can be through the whole town in five minutes. It's like, uh, okay, that was good. Where do we go now? It's like, what do you what do? You do? Uh, we've met, of course, some people there, but I think it's really important for you to know that no matter where we go and how far we are, you are always home to us. We love this body, and we have uh, all these years. You know, it's like you don't, you don't just walk away from a place and unattached think, well, that was then and this is now. No, you're always in our hearts. Janet and I, we think of you all the time. We think of the people here. We get the prayer chain. We're praying for everyone here. And um, so we're, I just need you to know that we always love you. And, if, you know, the only thing we don't like about Prineville is that you're not there. So if you all want to move over there, that'd be, that'd be great. It'd be awesome. We don't know what God has for us in this season. We thought we would, you know, mellow out a little bit. We've had the most busy year of our lives. Uh, we've been on the road most of the time. We've been home to visit once in a while, and um, we've been gotten a chance to speak here and there and see or go see our children and different things like that. But we are just at a point in our lives where we're just seeking God's will for us, and we, uh, we, we just believe that he has a purpose. Now, regarding the recent circumstances here at the church, of course, you understand we're with you, but our hearts course, have been broken and, and hurt. But we also know from experience what a gracious and merciful God we have. And I can say that from my own life, that over the years, Doug Snow hasn't always been without messes. In fact, the Lord's had to deal a lot with Doug Snow over the years and a lot of messes. But you know what? What I have discovered from him is that when there's genuine repentance in your life, there's hope. There's hope for a future. There's hope for healing. And if anyone is here this morning and you feel like you've gone too far, I want you to know something. God's arms are open to you. And there's healing in his name. And there's, we're believing that for our kids. You know, we, we love our children. And we love, we love Ryan and we love Mary. And we're, we're standing with them. We're encouraging them. We want to see God do a great work in their lives. And we know it's always a process, but I want you to know that we, we hurt with you in this and, and in different ways also as parents and as, as those who are pastors of the church. What I know is that you're in good hands, mostly because you're looking to Jesus. And as long as you're looking to Jesus, you're going to be okay. Us, us people, we will always fail and we will do things that will let you down. There's no doubt about it. But he is the one who has never let me down. And I pray that as a church, as you hold together here, and I love, I thought if there's ever a place I'd want to be, 
right now is at Calvary Chapel Southeast because you guys get it. You don't have to be fake and you don't have to be fraud. All you have to do is just genuine and open and just seeking God's grace in your life for yourself and for others. And that's the most wonderful thing in the world, isn't it? So from the bottom of our hearts, I just wanted to tell you that we love you and it is an honor for us to be with you today. And this morning, they've asked me to pick up the passage here where we've been the last few weeks. And if you want to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read the passage taken from verse 6. If you want to stand with me, that'd be great too. That'd be awesome for old time's sake. I don't know if you still do that. Are you still doing that? Oh, good. All right. I'm glad you're still doing that. We, I've always said we do that because we honor his word. And it doesn't mean that we're better anybody. I just, I feel in my own heart that there's a reverence for his word that we ought to acknowledge. But Isaiah writes here, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. And uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Father, we thank you this morning again, Lord, for the opportunity we have to come before your word. And we're so grateful, Lord, to come to you and know that you love us this morning. What an awesome thing, God, for us to, to know that you're our father and that we're your children and that you invite us before the throne room. And to realize, God, that you know us. There's nothing you don't know about us. You know every worry, every fear. You know all the anxiety. You know, God, everything that's going on with us are failures. You know it all. And yet, God, we are convinced that you love us. And you demonstrated that by sending Jesus to come and to bear the weight of our sin. This morning, Lord, as we're here together, we would pray, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would find encouragement this morning in this season, Lord, as we look to you. And I know that during Christmas time, sometimes we look everywhere else, but God, I pray this morning we look to you and we see you, God, as the one who is worthy of all of our praise. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd meet our needs here this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord, that there'd be healing in this room as we spend time together in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Liam, of course, shared on the wonderful counselor, did a wonderful job. Isn't he a great guy? He, I mean, I'm so proud of him, you know, Pastor Liam. I've been calling him that since he was 13 years old, so that's a blessing. And I love his heart for the Word of God and his uh, integrity in the Word. And of course, last week, Pastor Kevin did Mighty God. Looking at the, you know, the, the deity of Christ and uh, realizing that. And today we're going to be looking at the eternal father and next week of the prince of peace. But the thing I love about prophecy and why we bring it up every Christmas time in the first advent is it's more significant for us as New Testament believers because the story that we know of the gospel is not the story of just some man who showed up one day out of nowhere did a bunch of extraordinary miracles on the earth, you know, like healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. 
Oh, he did those things, and he also cast out demonic spirits, and he had control over nature, had control over the elements. And he showed himself, of course, powerful in his teaching, and all those things are wonderful, but what's on top of all of that is that he was the prophesied one. He was the one, the hope of the world, really, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world for centuries. They've been looking for this one to come. He did all those things, the anointed one, Israel's Messiah, the hope of Israel. Now, that cannot be said of Muhammad. That can't be said of Confucius or Joseph Smith. That cannot be said of Dalai Lama or any other self-proclaimed prophet. Only Jesus can testify to his life by his prophecies that led the way to him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who humbled himself and came down out of heaven to dwell among us, to be one of us, the fulfillment of prophecy by the evidence of his works and his teaching. And ever since the fall of man in chapter 3 of Genesis, there was that first prophecy given, from the seed of the woman is going to come one who will crush the head of the serpent. His coming, we know, as you look back in Scripture, it was the hope of Abraham, it was the hope of Isaac and of Jacob, of Moses and of King David, and of every righteous prophet throughout Israel. When you come to Isaiah the prophet, you remember that the role of the prophet was to really serve the Lord as his appointed one, his one to represent him before his people, to speak to men on behalf of God. They were literally the mouthpiece of God. And they had three primary functions in their ministry. First, they were to call the people to repentance when they fell away from the Lord, when they drifted off. They would come and they would call them, repent, turn back to the Lord. Secondly, they would warn of impending judgment if they would not repent. This is the option. You can either repent or you can face the judgment of God. And thirdly, it was to speak of a, a future hope, a time when God would come to this earth that he would reconcile the world to himself through his reign and his anointed one would rule and reign in righteousness and truth. And it's a wonderful thing to look at their ministry. And throughout Isaiah, you see all these elements of prophecy. You see, he prophesied about 750 years before Christ was born. The once united kingdom of Israel under the rule of one king had been divided now for over 200 years. The 10 northern tribes of Israel had been broken away from the two southern tribes of Israel, which are called Judah. And so when you go and you read through Kings and Chronicles, by the way, take note of this, that when it calls Israel, Israel, it's speaking of the 10 northern tribes. The nation has been divided. When you look at the, the, the tribe of Judah, it's the two southern tribes, it's Judah and it's Benjamin. And Judah is significant because in Judah is where Jerusalem is, the city of God. It's where the dwelling place of God, the temple, is located. But from the very time of the split of the kingdom, Israel, the, the ten northern tribes, ruled, were ruled by one appointed king, beginning with Jeroboam, who would follow after a series of kings who automatically and immediately went off into idolatry. They began to develop their own false religion. They rebelled against God and against the law of Moses. And it got worse and worse as the years went by. Both Judah in the south, Israel in the north, they both rebelled against the Lord. However, in the south and the two southern kingdoms of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, there were some righteous kings who served. 
They came from the line of David, as they ought to be according to the word of God. You would see kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah and others, and for seasons of time, there would be national repentance. But ultimately, the people would go back to the rebellion against the Lord. Isn't that just kind of like us? You see this pattern over and over again. And throughout the many years of Israel's deepening apostasy, God sent these prophets to warn the people. Elijah, Elisha, they would come and they'd warn the people, turn back to God or face the judgments of God. At the time of this particular writing, it was an extremely dark time for Israel. It was a time of great upheaval. It was spiritually dark. It was morally decayed. It was politically corrupt. Sounds a lot like someplace else I know. I don't know if you can figure that one out, but it was, it was a bad time. In chapter 8, Isaiah, really, he prophesied the coming judgment of the northern kingdom, that the Assyrians would ultimately come and capture this people. And within two decades from the time of the prophecy, from this prophecy, Assyria comes, and it completely overpowers the, the, the Israelites, and they are taken captive, and the people are dispersed throughout, the, throughout Assyria, and the people are displaced. So in 722 BC, God ultimately sends the Assyrians to conquer Israel. 136 year, years later, after the fall of Israel, Babylon is sent in 586 to conquer and capture the southern tribes, destroying Jerusalem, and as well with it, the temple and all of its worship. I remember the first time I was reading through the Bible, I find myself extremely frustrated with God. Like I'm reading, I said, God, why don't you just give it to them? Give it to them now. And now he would hold off, he would wait, and I think, oh, wait, you keep telling me you're going to do this, you keep telling me you're going to judge them, but you, but you don't. And I was really frustrated. I was angry. These people don't deserve it. They deserve to be wiped out right now. Maybe like some other place we might all be thinking of right now, too. So, of course, now that I'm older, I find myself extremely grateful for the patience and long-suffering of God. To know that he is patient, he's long-suffering with me. When you're on the receiving end, that's a good thing, right? Oh, God, thank you for your patience. So I see it all the way through. I love Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? You see the heart of God there? By the way, there is an important lesson I want you to hear this morning, and that is some people foolishly interpret God's patience and his long-suffering as tolerance for sin. Somehow along the line, he just kind of adapts to it all. You know, he's cool with it. Like you can change morality and you can do all these things and he's just cool with it. And they assume that because he hasn't judged the world yet, with all the wickedness and all the perversions going on, that he's not going to. The Bible is very clear on this, that though God is long-suffering and he is extremely patient, the day will come when enough is going to be enough. He will judge the world, but he calls you to repentance out of his love. That was true for Israel. That's definitely true for the world today. His judgment, it will come, not if, but only when. But as you read through the book of Isaiah, you would appear that he's somewhat troubled. He goes from the very low valleys where your gut is just wrenched as you're reaching about 
as Isaiah is prophesying, the judgments that are to come. And you're, it's bad news. And I'm teaching through Isaiah some years back, and I'm thinking, wow, are we going to get anybody out here? Some of this is just bummer. You, you read the judgments, and you get really torn apart. It gets this, I mean, how many ways can you say it? These people are going to be annihilated. And all of a sudden, he shifts. And he goes extremely to the highest heights of glory and to the mountaintops as he begins to prophesy this hope of a coming Messiah. And though his proper name, Jesus, isn't necessarily mentioned in Isaiah, the person and the character of Jesus screams throughout the pages. You can see Jesus everywhere. You see a New Testament believer. As we look at the, at the Bible through our lens through the New Testament, we can say Jesus is everywhere. He's all over the pages. It's not just in Isaiah. From, from Genesis all the way to the end, it's, it's there. Jesus is there. I mean, for that reason, Isaiah is often referred to by many as being really the fifth gospel. Why? Because Jesus is everywhere in it. He's the hope that the world is ever looking for. The early church, all they ever had was the Old Testament. You know, the law and the prophets, that's it. And yet from it, they saw every truth that we glean from as New Testament believers. It's wonderful when you begin to put the pieces together. And for those of you who don't love the Old Testament, I feel sorry for you. Because when you see how beautifully God has orchestrated this whole thing, it's just a, it's magnificent. You can't get enough. I love this saying that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. See, the great theme of the whole Bible, people, is this. It's love and it's redemption. It's a great love story. The love of a, of a God who is fully realized through the life of his son, who comes and lives and lives among us, and he ultimately dies for us and raises from the dead. And we know that one day he'll come again at the end of the age and he will reclaim the world to himself and he's going to purge this earth of all the evil and all the corruption and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. I love that. That's the prophecies that we see coming out of Isaiah. It's a prophecies of hope that you see. Isaiah 2.4 says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. What a time like that. Wow. Isaiah 35, verse 5, and then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue and the mute will shout for joy, and the waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah, and the scorched land will become a pool, and thirsty ground springs of water, and hunts of jackal, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will the any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joy upon their heads, and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Doesn't that make you think of a song, anybody? It's just, it's what a wonderful truth. And it's right there before our eyes. You see, of course, the first coming of Jesus is affirmed by the fact that when Jesus comes, he does make blind eyes see. And he does cause deaf ears to hear, and he does make the lame to leap and to jump. 
But even in that, there's still that future hope that is yet to be fulfilled. However, the prophets, they rejoiced in the promise of his coming reign, the good news. Because I like the good news. When I go through the Old Testament, the heavy stuff is there, and I know it's there for a reason, but I like to get to the good stuff. Okay, Lord, I know that this is really bad news here, but I know there's good news here. And the good news for a believer outweighs the bad news. Trust me, it's, it's so wonderful. But before he could ever come to rule and reign over this earth in righteousness, he first had to come to this earth in humility. And he had to come as a baby in the form of a man and to be, live life among men, to suffer the rejection of men, and ultimately to volitionally, by himself, lay down his own life as an ultimate sacrifice to atone for our sin, the sin of the whole world. This is what Paul makes so clear. You see, the prophets didn't understand it. They didn't know there had to be two comings. They, they saw pictures, but they could not fully comprehend it. But Paul writes about him in Philippians 2, 8. He says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that's the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, they didn't understand there had to be those two comings. Because this message of the gospel that you and I know is once a mystery, but has now been made known to us who know Jesus. It's so beautiful. Isaiah prophesies all these things. He prophesies his first birth. He says in, in Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin will be called, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a very bold, it's a virgin birth right there. He announces his death and his resurrection. And in Isaiah 52 and 53, he gives the most detailed description of Jesus and his suffering on the cross that you're going to find. I mean, it's, it's magnificent. And of course, then he course throughout the whole book, he deals with really Christ's reign, his ultimate reign over the whole earth. And that's, by the way, that is the thought behind when we sing Joy to the World. We're not saying a joy to this world because it doesn't know that joy yet, but it will. But he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. When you're singing that year, this year, think about that. It's the hope of when he comes to rule and reign. This is what we find Isaiah has in this prophecy. He has given the bad news in chapter 8, but here in chapter 9, he gives the good news. He says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And he says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, I want you to notice this, that in this very single prophecy, he is talking about his first advent, that a child is going to be born unto us. But then he goes all the way to the second advent where he will come and rule and reign over the governments. You know, today, we, we see a world full of evil corruption in government. You know, we see great world of chaos and injustice and 
deceptions that are everywhere, but it's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to be this way. It's because Jesus came the first time, and he finished his work and his first coming that we have hope for the second coming. And that's the point that it is all making before you when you look at prophecy. Today, though his kingdom isn't yet here on earth, it is now within us who believe. Liam brought this out so beautifully. For us who believe, Jesus is now our king. He's to rule over our hearts. He's to be there as the one. We are citizens of his kingdom, and we, we submit to him as our king and as our Lord. Listen, we, you and I, can know a peace and a freedom this world can never begin to understand because it's internal. It's right here, right with us. For unto us, a child is born, a son is given. I love that. Used to be a bumper sticker says, imagine world peace. And after it said, after Armageddon. It's not going to be found in this world. It's only when he comes to rule and reign. But right now, listen, if he's ruling and reigning in your heart, you can know his peace. And you can know the joy that he offers. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Focus here today having Liam and Pastor Kevin led the way. I want to look at the Eternal Father. And I want you to understand here that his name is called Eternal Father. Isaiah is not here denying the distinction of Jesus and the Godhead between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but rather he is highlighting the eternal nature of his character and of his being. David Gusick says it like this, the idea isn't that these will be literal names of the Messiah, instead these are aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he has come to do. His name will be called Eternal Father. In what sense is then Jesus the Eternal Father? The idea is being the Father here is that he is the, the source, the eternal source or author of all things. He's the one from whom all things originate. Jesus himself, we know, would say to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's the eternal one. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Pastor Kevin brought this up because they picked up, they were ready to kill him right then and there. They knew he was proclaiming his own deity. They understood it. But he says, I was here. I was here before you. I was here when Abraham was here. Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's where everything begins. He's where everything will end. He is God before the incarnation. He is God when he takes on human flesh. He remains God throughout his earthly life, and he stays as God all the way through eternity, although he bears the scars, the scars of a man forever as a testimony of the love of God for his people. The eternal son of God took upon himself humanity, 100% God, 100% man. He is the same one people who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the morning. He's the same one who met with Abraham on the oaks of Mamre in his old age, preparing him that they were going to have a child within a year, a miracle with Isaac. Genesis 18, that he's the same one who wrestled with Jacob at the Jabbok River in Genesis 32, 
He's the same one who met with Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness in Exodus 33. He's the same one who met with Joshua on the east of the Jordan crossing over to conquer Jericho, Joshua chapter 5. He's the same one who stood alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. He is the same one who Isaiah saw high and lifted up, and, his, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His glory was there in Isaiah 6. He's the same one who appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. He's the same one the apostle John beheld in Revelation when he was caught up into heaven and he heard this new song that was written by the host of angelic beings and saints. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain, you purchased of God with your blood of men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. He is the same one. He is the lion who executes the judgments of God in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. He is the same one who descends out of heaven as a champion on a white horse in chapter 19. And a double-edged sword comes out of his might, comes out of his mouth. And there he is, the same one who we will worship for all eternity. But mostly, he's the same one who touched my life 50 years ago. He's the same one who has walked with me on my wildernesses in my own life, walking with me on my own path, the same one who has ministered to my soul when I've been discouraged. He is the same one who, who, who led Luther and Whitfield and, and Wesley's and Spurgeon and Moody and Billy Graham and Chuck Smith. He's the one that my grandparents followed after. He's the one my mother followed after. He's the same one. He is the eternal, eternal son the source of all things. He's the Father by which all things come into being, even creation itself. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God the, uh, God, the firstborn among all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Everything. John 1.3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, of whom all things and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. You know, the children, this child that was born unto us, the son who was given, is the eternal Father, the source of all things. He's the source, he's the source of all love. He's the source of peace to men. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. He is the eternal source. He is the author of the means of our salvation, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who began it. He's the one who's going to bring it to completion in Philippians chapter 1. He's that one. He's the ultimate source of all hope, near and far. And importantly, he is the source of my relationship with my heavenly Father. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father but through me.
Jesus opened the way. The child born unto us, the son who was given, he possessed the exact nature of the father. Hebrews 1.3, he is a radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is one with the Father. John 14, 7, if you had known me, Jesus says to his disciples, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, will show us the Father, and this is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who sees me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father? The Father's in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works of, believe because of the works themselves. He is by very nature, the nature of God. He's the Son of God. I love this. Romans 8, 29, for those he formed knew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the firstborn. He's the first, the originator of this family of God, the redeemed, you and I. He's the reason of it all. And because of him, we're now made children of God. We get to call God Father. And have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. It invites us to come before the throne of grace with confidence. We're children of God. This is where it gets so personal to me. It gets so personal, this whole concept of Father. And maybe this wife, Pastor Kevin, asked me to share on this particular topic. Because this reference to the Father, knowing the Father, and how Jesus brought me to this love of the Father, because at this point in my life, I have to tell you, there is not a day that goes by at all anymore that I don't first thank God that I'm his child, that he's my father. I am realizing it in a way in my life that I've never known before. And I just every day, thank you, God, that I can call you father. See, I haven't always known that. Those of you who know my testimony know that my earlier part of my life, I did not have a healthy relationship with my earthly father. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't have time to go into that, and that's not the point. But that lack of relationship of an early father was a problem for me when I first became a believer. I felt like I was really missed the warmth and the comfort of that kind of relationship with a father. And for those of you who have good fathers, just listen, you are so blessed. Thank God for it. But I didn't, I didn't know that as a child. So when I first came to Christ and began to walk, I was ignorant of so many things like we all are, and I was awakened to this new truth of God being my father. But like many of us, I didn't understand the depths of what this meant and what it meant to have him as my father. I had a lot of years to kind of grow into this. When I first came to Christ, I have this memory that goes way back and is forever etched in my mind. It's a moment in time for me. I was newly saved during the Jesus movement, the early 70s. Part of that big Jesus revolution you saw down there. 
And God was stirring my heart. And even though my dad was a pastor back in New York where we lived, I was at a bad place in my life. I just give my life to Christ, but I didn't live at home, and I dropped out of high school. I was just floundering. I didn't know what to do with my life. I thought, well, where do I go? What do I do? And it was very late one evening, and it was nighttime, and it was Orange County, and Orange there, and I was driving, riding my bicycle. I had a 10-speed, and riding all by myself. I went by some orange groves. They had them then. And I got to this really dark spot, and there was no light. And all of a sudden, I was just overwhelmed with this horrible sense of loneliness. A lot of people can relate to that at some point in your life. I was so lonely. I felt like an orphan, like I don't belong anywhere. I can't explain how it all happened, but I pulled my bike off the road, and I wept, and I cried out to the Lord. I said, God, please fill my loneliness. I just want to know I belong somewhere. That night, God answered me in a way, again, that's hard to explain, but immediately I was overwhelmed with the presence of God's love. And it was so strong to me that all of a sudden, I felt for a, a moment and just a great, I belong. I'm a child, and I, I realized that he is the father that I would ache for. And, and I prayed over the years. I said, God, just send me somebody to be my father. He sent somebody to come and fill that role in my life. And I would ask certain people, would you please be my father? But th- they couldn't fill that gap. But only he has filled that gap in my heart and my life. And I've grown in it. Because my whole Christian life has been one experience after another of confirming that ownership of the Father to receive me and to take me in as this child, all because of Jesus. The Lord uses lots of circumstances in our life to teach us things. When Jen and I were first married, the Lord used that experience to, real, to reveal to me what a horribly selfish individual I was. I thought, wow, I'm one sick dude. Now, I thought the problem was her, and I tried to tell her that, but it didn't work out that way. Something happened to me when we had our first child, Michelle. I experienced something completely different. As a new father, I discovered that I had the potential to be selfless. That I had the potential to be sacrificial and loving. My kids could eat my french fries and I wouldn't stab their fork, stab them with a fork. Because you love them and you wouldn't do anything for them. I said, oh, God, this is what you've been trying to teach me. It's such a limited way, but I'm realizing that's what it was for me as a father. And all these years, and I have shared this many times over the years, the role that I have loved more than anything in the world, more than being a pastor, and I loved being a pastor, was being a father. And knowing what it is to love my children, I have not been a perfect father. You know, you always look back and, man, I really blew it here, but... I love, have loved being a father. I love all, all of our children. And even though we've gone through disappointments with our children, a heartache with our children, nothing changes the love of a father for your children. 
I get it. I have learned who I am as a man because God has loved me enough to discipline me and to take me to the woodshed when I need to be taken there. He's loved me enough to, to set me straight when I'm cocky and I'm proud. He's loved me that way. You see, at times, as children, we make a real mess of things, don't we? Somebody gets it. We can be such messy people. And that's why, people, we need the grace of God. Because he's not just my father, he is our father. Someone reminded me this morning, and somebody told me years ago, that God has no grandchildren. All he has is children. And we are his children, and it's a wonderful thing. This is what I've learned. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Hallelujah. Oh, God, I need that. I need to know the kind of a father that you are. And Jesus, the Son, has made the Father known in a personal way. And this is the Father that I have come to know and love. And he's the one I'm getting to know and love even more as the days go by. And someday I'm going to be with him forever. I love being a child of God. I love it. See, I've never really felt like I fit well into this world. I just don't. Never have. Even with the body of Christ, I, I love being with you. There's a certain element by which and I'm in this world and I walk outside this place, I don't belong. But I know where I belong. That's in this family of God. And he has proven it to me over and over. And he's always the same. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that good news? That he's forever immutable. He's never changing. Every good and perfect gift Perfect gift is from above, coming down out of the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. He is complete. He has no need to change. He never has to grow. He isn't progressive. Thank you, Lord. He doesn't shift like the culture around us. He doesn't adapt himself to fit our likes and our dislikes. It's who he is. He isn't swayed by the winds. And the trends of the day, he can never be more or less than who he is. He's all he ever was, all he will ever be. This is the one who I call Father. And through Jesus, I've come to know the love of a Father. We are loved. For unto us, a child is born, a son is given, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
me ask you, who is he to you? If you're here this morning and you've never experienced the grace and the freedom that comes from knowing God in such a personal way, he would receive you right now. But he calls you to repent, to turn and come to him and receive that love that he has for you. You see, he loves you. And if you've ever been confused about it, please take time to to focus on what he has done for you. And if you've been carrying this load of guilt and shame, listen, you can dump it all out today, right at the throne of grace. Because we have a God who loves you this much and more. That's the one, the everlasting eternal father. I pray that if that's you this morning and you're here and God has spoken to you, and you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're the child, but man, you haven't realized it. Maybe you're the child, but you realize, man, I'm a wandering child. I tell you what, he invites you back. He invites you back to that place of relationship just to personally know him and experience him. He is the lover of our soul. Father, I thank you this morning. I pray, Lord, that you, Father, would meet us in this place. I want to thank you one more time, God, just of knowing the reality that you are our Father. And Lord, during this season, as we're looking at the hope of the world that comes through Jesus, Lord, that there would be those who wouldn't miss the hope of the Lord in their own lives this morning. But God, if you're tugging on their heart this morning, that you would draw them in, that you would bring them close. Give them courage, Lord, to step out in faith this morning and tell you, Lord, that they believe in you, that they trust you, that they know, oh God, that they're going to believe that you receive them, Lord, and on account of Jesus and what he's done for us. There, there is salvation. There is hope. There is peace. There is life. If we would but just yield and repent. Lord, I thank you that you've given Janet and I this day, Lord, to be here with the people we love so much. And pray, Father, that you would continue, Lord, just to bless this church. Bless Pastor Kevin and the staff and Lord, I pray that there'd be much joy that would fill this place. We pray for healing, God, where there needs healing. Lord, this morning we lift up those who have left, not here. We pray, God, that you would bring them to a place of healing. Lord, we just pray that this morning, God, that you would just show and then let us, Lord, experience a love with you that we've never known. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we're closing this morning, I'm sure there's going to be people up here to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus, don't let this day pass by you. Hear his voice. He's calling you. And just... Respond. There's people here to pray with you.
Or maybe you're that wandering child who you have never understood the love of a father, but maybe today he's finally getting through to you, that he really does love you. We pray for that.